0: The following message is from the 2014 IBCD Summer Institute, making peace with the past. Well, hey, y'all, I think it's time for us to start. Why don't we um, pray together and ask the Lord to help us, shall we? Father in heaven, thank you for the beautiful day you've given us. Thank you for um, all the great truth from your word that we've been able to um, hear and enjoy and um, absorb and hopefully um, plan to follow. And so, Lord, thank you for just the richness of a day like today. Um, Father, thank you for this particular topic before us. And I recognize that um, persons would come um, for a variety of reasons to talk about this. Some who are just interested, um, curious about helping others, and it doesn't go any further than that, but others uh, because of a story that they would have of how this has affected their family um, or another family that they know and love. And so would you give us wisdom? Um, Would you give us help as we would seek to um, serve um, families with special needs children? Um, We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're, we're talking about how to help families with special needs kids. And think about this. Maybe this would be one way to just start this discussion. Um, what is the number one question that an expectant parent is most frequently asked? And I think probably the answer to that is, well, are you hoping for a boy or girl? Right? You hear that all the time. You're hoping for a boy or a girl, and what then is the typical response? Yeah, It doesn't matter as long as my baby is healthy. We've all heard that exchange. I'm not saying it's sinful. I'm not saying it's wrong but but i sometimes wonder if that reveals a foundational belief that resides in the heart of many of us that there are few things worse for a parent than having a child with special needs or for a grandparent to have one of their children have a child with special needs etc 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 I also wonder if there's a corresponding belief that if we ever found ourselves in that situation, there wouldn't be the kind of help that we would need. And frankly, um, that's a very realistic concern. You may know that the incidence of divorce among families where there is a special needs child present is dramatically higher Than the incidence of divorce where that's not the case, and where it's not the case, the the percentage is pretty high already. And so there's a substantial uh, amount of pressure on a family when they find themselves in this situation, and a corresponding feeling, depending on where they live and depending on a lot of things, that there's just really not enough help. It's interesting that... um, Many families with special needs kids do not go to church. And frankly, the reason they don't is because there are few churches that are really prepared to help them. And the last thing you need, if you're a person with a a family with a special needs child, you're dealing with everything that goes along with that all throughout the week the last thing you're going to do is add another quote-unquote optional activity to your schedule if the people at the church house don't know what in the world they're doing. If they're not prepared for you, if they don't really want you to be there, if it's not going to be an excellent experience, I can promise you right now they're not going to be back because they have so many things going on in their life already. And I'm not saying that's right, by the way. I'm just saying that is a fact that if the church is not ready to serve families like this, they're just not going to bother coming. Now, I probably need to throw out a couple of disclaimers here. I mean, there are reasons why um, I would speak on a topic like this. God has blessed our family um, with um, a special needs son, our son Andrew. That's a picture of him when he was a lot younger than he is today. But um, I have a rather unusual family. We have three children. My wife and I are about to celebrate our 32nd um, year of marriage. We have three children, all of whom have different biological fathers and different biological mothers. And you say, well, exactly how did that happen? Well, what I'm telling you is two of our three children are adopted. Um, We had our first daughter, Bethany, the old-fashioned way and um, Bethany is now 28 years old she and her husband live up in Minneapolis Um, she is a special needs um, teacher and just got a new job a couple of weeks ago the state of Minneapolis is trying to serve um, schools that are underperforming with they've divided the state in three segments and um, have put together teams of consultants that go into those schools and try to provide additional counsel and resources to help those schools get better. And um, Bethany was just chosen for one of those three teams as the special needs consultant. And um, her salary just doubled um, in the last couple of weeks. And um, so, um, God bless her. And um, her husband teaches um, Spanish in the public school system and is also working on his principal licensure. And they have um, our, our first grandson, Liam, And if I would have thought of it, I would have brought a picture of them. But that's Bethany and her family, and we're very, very thankful for them. Then um, God did not allow us to have additional children. And that that was fine with us. My wife and I were never, you know, we can't be happy unless we have 40 kids and all that sort of thing. So it's not like we were all wound up about it. We did some preliminary testing, and then you just have to decide there's a whole series of steps you can go through, and at some point you have to draw a line and say, well, what are we going to do and what are we not going to do? And frankly, we just decided we weren't going to go particularly far down that trail. We were so busy in ministry, it just wasn't that big of a deal to us. But we, we did at least start talking about adoption, and I, I hate... To tell this part of the story in some settings because I realize it can be as frustrating as I'll get out to people who have been waiting for years to adopt a child, but what happened to us was um, a baby was born to an um, uh, unwed mother in our town who had no plan for what was going to happen to that baby and had not even communicated to her family that she was pregnant. And so when the baby was born, there was no plan for this baby. Her um, attending physician wanted nothing to do with it. And as crazy as this might sound, in the state of Indiana, whoever has the physical custody of that child at the time can actually make the placement. I realize that sounds crazy. It eventually has to be, um, uh, it has to go through a judicial process. But the bottom line is one of my friends, who's a OBGYN happened to be in the hospital that night. And it's like, we got a baby, Uh, nobody wants this baby. And he, of course, knew that my wife and I were thinking about adoption, so calls us in the middle of the night. I should also mention that our first daughter had been praying night after night after night that God would give her a sister. And, you know, that just melts my wife and my heart when we hear her pray like that. Well, God answered her prayer. And so we literally get a phone call that says, Do you want a baby? Um, Like now. And um, so three days later, we brought our second daughter, daughter home. We named her Karis, which is the Greek word for grace. Um, Karis just a delightful young woman, uh, got a, a scholarship to Purdue to study chemical engineering, went through their program in four years, and is now employed by Eli Lilly down in Indianapolis. Um, my daughters are like rich. And, um, so I I told them, I just, I just was with our whole family together for Father's Day. And I explained to them that, um, you're doing so well, I'm retiring and, um, just decide who you want me to move in with. And, um, so anyway, so that's Kara. She's married to a policeman in our community and are part of our church family. Very, very delighted with them. And then our, um, third child, um, Andrew, um, we were actually asked by a, um, Expectant mom, a single mom who did not want to abort her child, but who knew that she, or at least believed, she was not in a position to raise her child, and so asked us to um, adopt Andrew. Andrew is a special needs son. Um, Andrew is blind. Um, Andrew has a number of other abnormalities in the development of his brain, Um, and as a result of that, he has to take artificial hormones to keep him alive, and just all of those sorts of things. Um, This is a Another picture of Drew, it kind of dates him by the size of that phone, Um, but um, that's another picture of him. And then here's a a more recent picture of the boys, and um, that's Andrew. He's now 21 years old, and um, we're setting up our family um, to have three instead of two long-term. Drew probably functions like someone who's about eight years old. And so he could not live independently of us. And so we're just structuring our life and structuring our family um, in order to care for Drew long-term. And then we have some, frankly, post-death plans for my wife and me on what's going to happen to Drew. You have to figure out the whole retirement thing. You have to figure out the custody issues. You have to figure out trust issues, just all that. So God, uh, thank the Lord, all that is in place for Drew. But that's that's what he looks like today. My wife and I have also written a little mini-book on this topic of This Is Any Help, um, Your Special Needs Child. That's published by New Growth Press. Honestly, I've had the privilege of writing a number of chapters and different things. This is my favorite um, thing that my wife and I have ever written. And um, it's very, very personal. And um, I think that's why it's the favorite thing that I've ever written. But um, if that's of help, I just want to be sure that you knew that that was um, available to you. And what I'm going to talk to you about now It's kind of a summary of what that booklet is trying to do. Now, here's what I don't want to do the rest of the afternoon. I don't want to sugarcoat this topic. I think that would be offensive frankly to any family who has been in this situation some who would have children whose needs are less severe than Drews others who have children whose um, needs are far more severe there's a spectrum here for sure I think it'd be very offensive if I just did the preacher talk on this and sugarcoated it as if there weren't any challenges because that just frankly it's just not the truth Now there's a lot of places in the the Bible that we could use as sort of a foundation for our talk. The, the one that I would like to use is this passage from Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That, that's a promise from God. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I really believe that's an important message for families who find themselves in this situation. And what I want to do with this text is look for three foundational truths to help us serve families with special needs children well. The first one is this, to encourage them to be honest and authentic about the pain. Friends, God does not expect his children to go through life with a plastic smile affixed to a broken heart. And um, let's face it, every parent has dreams and aspirations for our children. It may be the thought of your child playing sports, the thought of your child being married and having a family, the thought of your child um, caring for you when you're old. Do you realize oftentimes dreams like that are completely dashed when a child has special needs? Their child may never be able to speak. His lifespan may be greatly diminished. She may never be able to return or show love in any way ever. He may never be able to play sports or climb a tree or read a book or go out on a date. Many special needs children are going to require lifetime care. This can be absolutely devastating financially. In fact, early in Drew's diagnosis, they suspected that um, he was going to need growth hormone. See, the reason Andrew is blind, there's nothing wrong with his eyeballs. The issue is the tissue between his brain and his eyeballs did not develop. So his his optic nerves are severely underdeveloped. And they theorize that on the 26th day of Drew's development, even before his birth mother knew she was pregnant, there was some sort of an abnormality that occurred on that particular day. And as a result of that, um... He has a triad of problems that, that occur right here at this place in his brain. For one, he doesn't have a septum. You have a septum that separates your brain, and that's, it's really important to have one of those. It keeps things from getting mixed up. Drew does not have a septum. Um, Drew also either does not, we, we can't tell for sure, there's no test that you can tell us for sure, um, short of an autopsy, but, but Drew either does not have a pituitary gland or his pituitary gland is severely underdeveloped. That's how we found out about all of his abnormalities was after about a month of having him in our home, he stopped breathing. And um, if you've ever been in that situation as a parent, you know how terrifying that can be. And so we have a um, a pediatrician who's a member of our church. We called him. He said, get down to the hospital right away, which of course we did. He didn't stop. He, He restarted. But we're shocked, and so that, that set off a whole battery of tests determining that the reason he stopped breathing was because he was dehydrated. And we thought, well, we, you know, he's been drinking. I mean, why, why would he be dehydrated? And they ascertained that the, the reason he was dehydrated was because his kidneys weren't working. So see, he, he was literally urinating himself to death. So you assume you got a kidney problem. They did tests on his kidneys, and his kidneys worked fine. Well, if his kidneys worked fine, but they're not working, that tells you you've got a brain problem. And so his pituitary, right now, each one of us has a pituitary gland that is working, and it's giving out little spritzes of ADH, antidiuretic hormone, which is telling your kidneys to work. So how do you know that mine are working? I won't get into it, but they are. And so the bottom line is your pituitary gland is doing that. Andrew doesn't have one of those. And so he was urinating himself to death, and the process was was uh, presenting itself as um, his breathing stopping. Well, thankfully, some really smart person developed an artificial hormone that can stimu- or simulate that exact same process, and so he has to take that every day in order to stay alive. Well, when, they suspe- when you have that happen, then they also suspect that there's gonna be an optic nerve issue, because your optic nerves come off- out of your brain through the optic chiasm at that very place that the pituitary gland sits, and sure enough, Andrew's optic nerves are severely underdeveloped. But when you have pituitary issues, they also suspect growth hormone issues. And if you have to get growth hormone replacement therapy, $40,000 a year. And um, that's what it was when, when our, our doctor told us all the way back at the beginning, it's, I assume it's gone up. And um, just trying to think about all of those sorts of things financially on a pastor's salary, I'm thinking $40,000 a year, that's not going to leave much. And um, that's where we were. The child may never be able to feed um, herself. He may never be able to use the restroom. My son cannot use the restroom to this day without assistance. Think about what that means for my wife. Every day. Um, simple words like mommy, daddy may never come out of that child's mouth. Never. That's a really hard word for a parent to hear. Never. But, but that is the reality that a number of these families are facing. Well, what do we do with that? If this passage in Matthew is going to be our guide, what are we going to do with that? Well, I think we honestly acknowledge the weight of the load. See, in this invitation, Jesus spoke to people who were weary and heavy laden. He doesn't ignore the hardship, the pain that comes from living in a fallen world. Caring for a special needs child can be exhausting. It just can be. For example, Andrew, um, here's something about blind people. At least a a person who is a severe, there's a spectrum of blindness. My son is really blind. Well, you understand, blind people don't get sleeping. What would be the point of sleeping? It's always dark in his world. And so, so it, it was practically impossible to get Drew on any kind of a sleep pattern. And I'm not talking about for like six months. I'm talking about really Andrew did not sleep well thoroughly through the night until somewhere between 15 and 20 years old. You, you talk about sleep deprivation because one of us had to function and go to work, and so a lot of this fell on my dear wife. And so, and you can't just say, well, Put him to bed and, and, and trust Jesus. I mean, the bottom line is that there was no way for us to even be able to control what he might do. One night we heard him down there. We eventually got a buzzer that we had to put on his door because our concern was that we, we live in Indiana, that winter is bad. That's another thing about Drew. He has no sense of um, temperature. He, in fact, Drew... <laughs> One day he was sitting in the snow on our back porch in his diaper having a great time. So, so the whole thing about a, a hot stove, he knows nothing about that. The whole thing about uh, the, the cold. He, so our concern was that if we were so sound asleep and he decided he wanted to crawl outside, he could crawl outside and, and freeze in the snow and, and we would never know. So we have an alarm on our son's door, and so we heard him down there like two o'clock in the morning. we went busting down there just to see what was going on and it was one of those we opened the door and, <gasps> because and we still don't know how he did this, but he had crawled up the dresser uh, drawers and was laying down on the top of the dresser with his leg crossed over the other and it was one of those experiences. Don't, don't, don't say anything because he might roll off and injure himself. But but that was that's typical Drew type behavior. He was just having some fun in, in the middle of the night. And I'm just saying it can be um, exhausting. Drew also had great trouble learning how to walk for a lot of reasons. Think about a blind person. Why would they walk? Why did you learn how to walk? It was probably because you saw something that you wanted to go get coupled with the fact that you saw other children who were walking and you were mimicking what they were doing. You realize a blind child has neither of those. So, so he has nothing that he's wanting to go get, and he's certainly never seen anybody walk. And so how do you actually teach a blind child how to walk? It was also him lifting his head off the ground was just terrifying. So so that created a challenge with the whole walking thing as well. Um, He also had, um, and still to this day, has um, complicated sensory issues in his feet. So that was the other problem with walking. At some point, you could hold Drew like this and, and try to have him put his feet down, and he would just do the bicycle pump with his legs, anything to not get his feet to actually touch. And we're not exactly sure where that pain came from. He was so dehydrated at the children's hospital that, in order to get blood, in order to do the tests, these poor nurses were just having to squeeze his feet with all of their might to try to get a little drop of blood. So they're poking him everywhere, and just it was just terrible. It was terrible for them, terrible for us. We don't know if that's what caused the sensory issues in his feet. We we don't know for sure. But to this day. He had so, so that complicated the walking thing. Well, he did not walk until he was eight years old. So what that meant was, whenever Drew had to go from point A to point B, me or my wife was carrying him. And you can see, he's a pretty robust fella. And, um, and, and so the bottom line is, I mean, you talk about just back-breaking kind of work. That's what it was. Now, I, the, the question I would ask is Is it okay in the church to just be honest about those kind of facts? I'm not fussing about it. I'm not whining about it. I, I'm not cussing God about it. But I'm saying that is true. And is it okay for, for people in the church to honestly acknowledge the weight of the load without somebody quickly taking them to Philippians 4 and saying, You ought to rejoice in the Lord always? And again, I say, Rejoice. Can we be authentic? And we need to teach them then to cry out to the Lord. So see, what does a Christian do in that kind of a situation? Do we just ignore the pain? Because big boys don't cry? Do we wear a plastic smile? Do we rub some dirt on it? And I would suggest that, that God invites and God wants His people to genuinely and passionately cry out to Him. Where we're urged. to to bring our hurts, to bring our questions, even our complaints, to his very throne of grace. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is this. I use it as a pastor all the time. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I will call to you. I call as my heart grows faint, overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. We want to learn about what it means for God to be the rock that is higher than us, don't we? I I would suggest you can't get here without that process. There's no shortcut to learning what that's like. You have to be willing to be authentic. You have to be willing to cry out to God. You have to be willing to call out to Him. You have to be willing to acknowledge, my heart is overwhelmed. If you're not willing to do this, this, and this, you don't get that. So, cry out to the Lord. In his book, Soul Physicians, um, Biblical Counselor Robert Kellerman, who's a good friend of mine, he writes about the importance of developing spiritual candor, which he defines as courageously telling oneself the truth about life, in which I come face to face with the reality of external and internal suffering. He went on to say this, In candor I admit what is happening to me, And I feel what is going on inside of me, the developing spiritual candor, developing the the willingness to cry out to God. And I think one of the questions we have to ask is, are we creating an environment where our counselees feel comfortable crying out about what's happening around them and what's happening to them and what's happening in them? Um, I, I want to be very careful how I say this next part, but some of you know that we recently changed the name of NANC, the National Association of Theistic Counselors, to ACBC. And, um, you know, there's an interesting discussion about all of that, and there was a lot of reasons why we did that. But one of the reasons was that the word NANC or the word neuthetic could give the impression that we believe that biblical counseling is solely about confronting people regarding their sins. Now, we've never believed that. Jay Adams did not believe that. Um, However, I can understand why some people would think that about us, and that's not what we believe. We do not believe that every counseling case comes down to find a sin, shoot it with a Bible verse, send the person out to memorize and pray. Now, are we interested in confronting people about their sin? Of course, but we're equally interested in comforting people who are suffering. And I have a number of counseling cases where they're really suffering kind of cases. And it's not so much a matter of confront. We're not talking about people who are, who are rebelliously um, uh, shaking their fist at God and heading in a wrong direction. We're just talking about people who are, are hurting. And the Bible has answers for people like that too. And our approach to counseling ought to provide answers for people like that. I think we ought to tell folks, don't be afraid to express. I I mentioned this a little bit last night. Don't be afraid to express questions or confusions or or doubt or complaint. In fact, I I use this illustration from Habakkuk, but I didn't go to the text. Here's the text. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen? Well, that sounds almost disrespectful. (laughs) But that's a prophet, maybe the most spiritual man in the country. But he's talking directly to God. How long must I cry out to you violence, but you don't save? And what he's talking about there is what's up with the fact that your people are being so sinful and you're not doing anything about it. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. And if you know the context of this book, right now um, Habakkuk is talking about the people of God. Why in the world are you tolerating the sinfulness of your people in that way? The law is paralyzed. You call me to be a prophet. For what? The law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous knows so that justice is perverted. Those are the sounds of an authentic conversation between the Lord and one of his faithful servants. And you never hear Habakkuk chided for words like that. That's authenticity. That's crying out to God. And I think I use this quote too. I love this quote. God is the friend of the honest doubter who dares to talk to God rather than about Him. Prayer that includes an element of questioning God may be a means of increasing one's faith. Expressing doubt and crying out about unfair situations in the universe show one's trust in God. I believe that and one's confidence that God should and does have an answer to humanity's insoluble problems. I don't know what you think about that. To me, it's amen, 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 and amen. And one of the things that I'm excited about, and I've been involved in the biblical counseling movement for a long time, and um, I am more excited about where this movement is than ever. And that's not in any way to speak disparagingly about those who have gone before. I don't mean that in any way, shape, or form. They wanted us to build on the foundation that they laid, and there's a lot of great building being done. Part of that is I'm so glad for the authors, the men and the women who are writing more um, and just helping the movement become more robust. And what you're seeing is, in addition to solid books being written about various aspects of sin, You're seeing an equal number of books being written about the issue of suffering. And that's becoming more of a a balanced, nuanced um, aspect of our approach, and I'm very, very thankful for that. That's part of what I think I mentioned in one of my sessions. I'm also part of an organization called the BCC, the Biblical Counseling Coalition. And um, that's a a good organization of um, biblical counseling leaders and biblical counseling organizations who are working together together we really believe in that. We want the various organizations to develop deeper friendships, to work together. Sometimes biblical counseling sounds like um, or feels like 1 Corinthians 1, where you've got to decide, am I part of this group or this group or this group? Am I have a Paul? Am I have a Paul? Am I have Cephas? Seriously? Biblical counselors, if anybody, ought to be able to get along, ought to be able to work together. And so I'm glad Jim Newheiser is Neus- 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 part of the Biblical Counseling Coalition Um, Ernie Baker is part of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. There's a lot of leaders in that movement for sure. But one of the things that's happening is we have a leadership retreat every year where we just come together and just build friendships and work on best practices. We want to learn from one another. That's the problem when you only hang out with your own thing. Over time, your kids start looking funny. And so the, the bottom line is we want, to, we want to cross-pollinate, we want to learn from one another, we want to develop best practices, and then we write books. So after those leadership retreats, we write books, and the first book that we wrote was called Christ-Centered Biblical Counseling, and one thing I like about that particular book is that there's a, a nice balance between sinning and suffering, and I'm, I'm very, very glad for that. Yeah, I'm going to have to watch my time here, but, but I would encourage you also to jot down Psalm 73, which is a marvelous pen, or a marvelous psalm um, penned by Asaph that, that, that does the exact same thing that um, Habakkuk does. I would encourage, you might say, oh, are you going to seriously have a counselee read something from Habakkuk? And the answer is Absolutely. Absolutely. We certainly would want them to to drink deeply from a psalm like um, Psalm 73. Also understand this, that when you're doing that, you're being like Christ. See, Jesus not only gave this invitation, but he also modeled this kind of emotional and spiritual authenticity, right? It's not just that he invited you to cry out to him, but at the appropriate time, he cried out to the Father. True? True. And when he said in John 19, 28, I am thirsty. When he said in Matthew twenty seven forty six, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The same compassionate Savior who invited us to, to acknowledge these kind of situations that make us feel burned and weary. He was willing to do the exact same thing at his greatest hour of need. I think we might want to just kind of push the pause button on this and ask you, How do you handle situations when you suffer? Because you understand the best counselor is first a good counselee. And we can't ask our counselees to do something that we're not doing ourselves. So as you think about this invitation from Christ and you think about these just rudimentary principles about suffering, would that that describe the way you suffer? And if not, what needs to change in the days ahead? In the way that you talk to God, the way that you talk to others, when things are not going well. Now, what do we do from there? What comes next in this text? And I think you could say it like this. You have to accept responsibility. So, see, Jesus not only encourages us to acknowledge our burdened, weary condition, he also instructs us to do something about it using a word picture that every person in that day would have known. Take my yoke upon you. John MacArthur said this about that metaphor. A yoke was made of wood, hand-hewn, to fit the neck and the shoulders of the particular animal that was to wear it in order to prevent chafing. For obvious reasons, the term was widely used in the ancient world as a metaphor for submission. Submission. The yoke was part of the harness used to pull a cart, plow, or mill beam, was the means by which the animal's master kept it under control and guided it in useful work. So what's a yoke? It is a yoke. A yoke allows the wearer to accomplish something that is hard. Right? You don't wear a yoke on a holiday. A yoke allows the wearer to accomplish something that is hard. And I love the fact that Jesus practiced full disclosure. He didn't say, come to me and everything's going to be great. He didn't say, come to me and everything is going to be easy in the sense that it's going to be exactly what you want them to be. He explained that following him would involve this kind of submission to his plan. You're wearing a yoke. It's just like folks who like to wear a cross as a piece of jewelry. Nothing wrong with that. But sometimes I see people even who don't even know the Lord wearing crosses, and I'm tempted to ask them, do you understand that that was an instrument of torture? not just a piece of jewelry. So, so yes, it's a yoke, but never forget this, it's Jesus' yoke. And that's true for every um, Christian parent ever who has had the privilege of having a special needs child. Yes, it's a yoke. I'm not going to water it down. It is a yoke, but it is Jesus' yoke. In fact, I think exegetically perhaps the most important word in that verse is also the shortest, The word my, take my yoke upon you. Every challenge we face is one that our Savior and Lord sovereignly chose for us. And it goes right along with what we were hearing about in our last session. Chris and I remember the morning that Andrew's diagnosis is becoming clearer. We spent about a week in our local hospital as they were doing the preliminary diagnosis. They did a great job. But we eventually were transferred down to our state children's hospital. We have a great, it's called Riley Children's Hospital in Indiana. You undoubtedly have one where you live as well. It's the kind of place that you never want to go to, but you're really glad it's there when you need it. I have the view, by the way, that every parent ought to have to go to Riley once a year and spend some time on the cancer ward. Hang out with the cancer children for a day, and you will never complain about anything again. So I think that's a good thing for parents to do. But we ended up um, at Riley. At that point, as I said, Drew was four, five weeks old at that point. We were not sure he was going to survive at that point because they had figured some things out about the condition, but they weren't sure about whether or not his body was going to respond to the only treatment that was available. And I'll tell you, our hearts were filled with fear. If you've been in a children's hospital, at least for us, it's a research hospital. So it is not a quiet place. He was in a room with four or five other children who were really, really sick. There were monitors everywhere, and they were constantly going off at all hours of the day and night. There's a research hospital, so you're not just dealing with the doctors, but you're dealing with all these students as well. They're traping in and out, and that just goes with, if you want the best care, you've got to be in a situation like that. Um, it, It felt like we were in the middle of a hurricane. That's what it felt like emotionally, like we're just in the the middle of a hurricane. But I, I think both Chris and I would say, looking back on that, we are very thankful that God allowed us to feel pain at that level. Another thing, it kind of felt like this. It felt like being on a really fast motorcycle and dropping it and then just sliding down the pavement and having your skin just torn off your body. It was real. It was raw. The volume, it was interesting too. The volume just felt like it was turned up on every aspect. Everything was louder during those days. But we're thankful that, yes, God gave us our emotions and we needed to experience that. We needed not to deny it. We needed to experience that. But he's given us more than our emotions. We're not just a bunch of nerve endings. He's given us a heart. He's given us our minds. We, we can process what's going on in and through us. And so we eventually had a mental conversation that sounded something like this. Is there anything about this situation that is outside of God's control? And obviously, what's the answer? Absolutely not. Could God have prevented this from happening to Andrew and to us if he had chosen to? Absolutely absolutely. Will God ever give us more than we can bear? No, I don't believe so. I don't believe so. Can God use this situation for his glory and for our good? Yeah, yeah. Has God promised to go with us as we try to raise our son for him? Are we going to be leaving Riley Hospital even if Drew does survive alone? No. The most important person who is going to leave with us in that car was the one who is unseen. And so the answer to that is yes, absolutely. Then, will we accept this responsibility and seek to joyfully submit to God's plan for our family? And we did answer that question with a solid yes. And I think that one of the reasons that you can accept that responsibility is because of the way Jesus described himself in this passage. He said he's gentle. This isn't some harsh king submitting you to his He's gentle and he is humble in heart, which is why the writer of Hebrews would later say that we have what kind of a high priest? A, a sympathetic, a sympathetic high priest who's touched with our infirmities. It's never going to be more than you can bear. And I realize there's different views exegetically on what this verse means. I think this verse fits this situation. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond, because there are all sorts of ways we could have responded in sin. He, he won't permit you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can, here it is, stand up under it. Now, a lot of parents might hear that and say, how in the world could that possibly be true? How can we stand up under this trial? One of the answers, not the only answer, but one of the answers is get help. Don't be so proud to to refuse the help that other people want to give you. That's why I'm so glad for our church family. We have some um, people who just love special needs kids. And so every one of our special needs children in our church has a dedicated aide. And so for years, Janice Cody was our um, Andrews uh, aide. And so my wife would pull up to the curb and, and Janice would be there. And she would take Drew to his Sunday school class, sit there with him, help the teacher do whatever adaptively had to do in order to make that lesson work for Drew along with the rest of the students, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That freed my wife up to be able to go into a worship service and be able just to worship and be able to concentrate on the Word and and all that sort of thing. But that required her um, being willing to accept that kind of help. It also just involves um, including special needs kids in activities And, and finding ways as a church family to be sure that they are included as well I would also say this, and I believe this so strongly. Balance the weight of your yoke with the glory of eternity. See, whatever responsibility Jesus has given us in this life, it's only temporary. It's only temporary. Let I me mean, say, so, well, didn't you say that, that Andrew would never be able to care for himself on his own? Yeah. So, so it would appear that God has given us this particular yoke for as long as we, Chris and I, are here on this earth you realize that's just a vapor? In comparison with eternity, that is just a vapor. These first 21 years of Drew's life have gone by incredibly quickly, incredibly quickly. In fact, now Drew's taller than than Chris. This is Chris, and this is obviously Drew. This is our oldest daughter, Bethany, and her husband, Rob. Drew loves bears. Most special needs kids have obsessions. Um, and that's an interesting discussion in and of itself. My son absolutely loves bears. If we, if we called him on my cell phone right now and said, hey, what would you like Daddy to bring you back from San Diego? A bear, a bear. And, and he said, well, how many does he have already? A zillion. And his room, he likes to be called bear. He loves bears. And so we were at the zoo in front of the bear exhibit. I mean, he was in heaven. He was absolutely in heaven. But you can see just how um, big he is now. Here's an example of um, Robin Bethany came to visit from Minneapolis, and they found this at a Goodwill store or something. Drew was in it. It was high cotton right then, because that is a real bear for sure. But it doesn't matter. They'd be little bears, big bears. He absolutely loves bears. He cannot have too many bears. It's just, that's just him. Um, here's another picture of us by that um, bear um, exhibit, and he was just having a great, great time. seems like yesterday. We brought him home from the hospital. It really does. It just seems like yesterday. And look how um, big he is already. Uh, Scripture frequently calls upon us to think about whatever challenge we're facing in light of eternity. Doesn't it? Like like verses like this. In this you greatly rejoice, though for a little while, though, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief. A little while. Yeah, in comparison to eternity, it's a little while. Or this passage, 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore we don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. There it is. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This, by the way, often becomes a great opportunity to check with our counselees just to see if they genuinely know Christ. Obviously, you cannot have this kind of an eternal perspective without having experienced the saving grace of God. And many times that can be a marvelous opportunity to see men and women come to Christ. I would also say this, lastly, prepare for an adventure. Absolutely, prepare for an adventure. There will never be a person in heaven who regrets having accepted Jesus' yoke. I absolutely believe that. And there's a couple of rewards that Christ specifically promises in this passage. He says, learn of me. There's the adventure of learning. And Chris and I would say that having Andrew has been an incredible learning opportunity for us. And you might say, well, learning like, like what? Well, we've learned the power of the gospel because Scripture tells us that we're united with Christ in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And we've come to understand the beauty of death more. Because of handling, because of handing, and having Andrew. And you might say, well, why would that be? Well, Andrew's challenges sometimes reveal the sinfulness of our own hearts. See, Andrew is not the only person in our family with special needs. Andrew's daddy has some special needs, Andrew's mama has some special needs. All God's people have some special needs. And situations like this put us in a position where many times those come to the fore, and then we can, in the power of the gospel, put such tendencies to death. It doesn't stop there because then the focus of the gospel is on the empty tomb. And so Jesus gives us the power to do really, really hard things. Our counselees can learn what Paul meant when he said, Don't offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been bought, brought from death to life to offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. I've seen my wife do that day after day after day after day after day. I've never heard my wife one time complain about the fact that we have a special needs child. In fact, the, the, the sound that I hear most frequently when I come home is the sound of laughter. My wife is a very joyful person to this day. Uh, My son is a very joyful person for sure. We can also learn about the sufficiency of God's Word. I mean, you find yourself in situations where we're out of answers. But I think that's good because then that drives you to the Word. The psalmist said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey. It, It caused me to dive into the word or here it is it was good for me to be afflicted that that i might learn of your decrees our counselees can also learn about god's um, sufficient grace i mentioned this last night in the past discussion but here's the thorn in the flesh passage the end of it my grace is sufficient for you my power is made perfect in weakness so paul said therefore i will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses Can we get off of the, I don't care if it's a boy or girl, as long as it's healthy? Do you have any idea how offensive that is when a parent of a special needs child hears that? Mm -hmm. So let's just get off of that. I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. There's also the adventure of um, divine rest. Jesus promised, I will give you rest. In fact, it's so important that that's actually mentioned twice in this brief interchange. That is so humorous for Chris and I to think about having a special needs child like Drew and having rest. It's like talking about jumbo shrimp. It's just words that don't really go together very well. But it's a promise of God obviously something other than physical sleep. We're we're talking about rest for your soul, peace, comfort, assurance that God will continue to sustain you as you abide in Him. And part of that is the rest of contentment. We are firmly convinced that caring for a special needs child is God's perfect will for us. And there's a sense of peace and contentment that comes over you when you believe that. You remember these words to the exiles in Jeremiah's day. I know the plan I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. There it is. Plans to give you hope and a future. That's the kind of God that we serve. And it's just been it has been delightful to enjoy the contentment that comes from this adventure. This is a... Drew's on a special needs softball team, which is just fascinating. There's some parents in our town who... They tried to have their special needs kids in regular little league, and the coaches got all crazy about, well, can't play your child because we might not win, as if that's the most important thing in the world. So they said, fine, we'll just start our own team. And so it's a whole group of special needs kids, but what they do, they pair the special needs kids up with different teams from our community. So sometimes it might be another secular softball team, it might be whoever, and each special needs child has someone who plays with him or her, um, and then they play together. And so this happened to be the, the um, these are the, uh, this is the ladies basketball team for Purdue University. This is um, Sharon Versip, that's the Purdue women's basketball coach, and um, they, they came out one night, and so here's, here's Big Drew right there with the ladies, and um, and it was funny, right after that he started beatboxing for them, and they all had a circle, and he loves music, um, not all of which I particularly like. But, um, I mean, he, there he is. That's Drew in his element. That's rest. God's giving our family rest. It's the rest of contentment. Here's um, just another picture. After he's got his little trophy from his baseball team, you can tell he's pretty happy about um, that particular trophy. We also were in Purdue University is there in our community and so the this is one of the you can tell the guys leaning down over drew and drew's pretty tall but um the the varsity football team at purdue um has a, a several days where the special needs come in and they work out special needs kids work out together with the uh, football team and drew absolutely loves and they love him they absolutely this so the rest of content don't be afraid of the yoke that's the point don't be afraid of the yoke there, there's the rest of joy. I, I wish you could meet Drew. I wish you could meet him for sure because he's hilarious. He's absolutely hilarious. There, that's typical Drew right there. This is um, Joel Benson giving Drew drum lessons. God bless him. <laughs> giving Drew drum lessons. But that is a, Joel just said something that made Drew laugh, and that is a typical um, Drew face. Or here's another one. We have a program in our town where they take special needs kids um, water skiing, and so they have adaptive skis. It's fascinating the way they do this. So he's sitting down on the ski, and he's getting ready. And it's funny because as soon as the boat starts going, you can hear him screaming, all, ah! all around the lake. And then as soon as they stop, he says, I want to go again. And, um, but it's just it's a joyful, a joyful experience. There's the rest of fulfillment. You just watch God at work. Several years ago, a church or a family came to us from outside of our church. We didn't have any connection with them at all. And um, they wanted to give us 100 acres of property. And um, they needed to do that for tax purposes. And one of the things about that property was um, it had a stocked fishing pond on it. Now, you understand that is the perfect sport for a blind child. Fishing is the perfect, so so Drew and I kind of viewed that as our personal gift from God. Um, Other people can use it. We're actually going to develop it into some other things down the line. But right now, it is bass heaven. And so there's an example of Drew. That's pretty good bass right there. And so um, Drew caught that baby right there, and there's another one that he caught. And um, we have spent so much time out there. And I'm saying, who does that? Shows up at a church and says, I need to give you 100 acres of property. I mean, who does that? God does that. God will provide everything that you need as you trust in him. As I said, we've spent so much time on the the shore of that pond. It's just amazing. But right there, in fact, just right there at that spot, one night we're sitting there, and Chris and I have been very, very careful about not pushing Drew into making a decision to trust Christ. I mean, you never want to manipulate your children to do that. But certainly in a situation like this, we did not want to do that. So one night we're sitting there on the edge of that pond, just he and me, and he said, Daddy, can you show me how to become a Christian? Right out of the blue. He had obviously been thinking about that. He'd been hearing about it forever, but of his own volition. And so right there on the shore of that pond, um, he trusted Christ as Savior and Lord. And not long after that, he wanted to be baptized. And so I thought you might enjoy um, seeing Drew being baptized. Now, I'm just playing this off of my computer, so I hope there's enough sound so that you can kind of get the gist of what happened. To you tonight by even the mode of baptism. So what they're trusting for their salvation is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The first thing man we're going to be baptizing is true, bear, mind. And it's kind of another part of the story, but Drew has invented his own language. He calls it Pumanavian. It's it's got all sorts of words to it. Drew has always been fascinated by language. He learned how to count in Spanish before he learned how to count in English. And so he's fascinated by languages. And so that diggity-dum, that's a word he says whenever he knows he's doing something Right. And um, so when he gets really excited, I know I'm doing the right thing. That's what he says. And a few people got it, but there were a few of his aides who were in that service. And, of course, they knew exactly what that word meant. And um, they they got exactly his point that he knew he was pleasing God. And um, I wish another, just at Father's Day, we had all of our family home. And um, we're standing there getting ready to eat. And um, I asked Drew if he would like to pray. I wish I would have recorded his prayer because... um, Without any prompting, he prayed and went through every one of the family members, including those who were visiting. So his sister and her husband and our, our grandson. So he went, he, he, he's got the intellect enough to pray for every person. Then he just prayed out of the blue for one of the deacons in our church who's going through chemotherapy right now. And he thanked God for uh, mom making the meal. It was just an absolutely delightful prayer. And um, it, it, uh, here's the bottom line. What Jesus said in this verse is true, obviously. And um, so, as we have the opportunity to work with parents of special needs children, um, yes, it's a yoke, but it's God's yoke, and there's much that can be learned as we joyfully and submissively accept that yoke and see what God's going to do in and through us. Are there any questions, any comments, anything that needs to be balanced off on what we've said here? and this may be something that has too long of an answer, but uh, dealing with the parents who are um, angry and bitter about the situation that has come upon them, and and I'm thinking more of after the child has grown up, and in some cases, uh, children that are special needs but have grown up to be rather independent or interdependent, Mm -hmm. and now have anger toward their parents who are really angry with them most of their childhood. I think that's a big question, that dealing with the parents... That haven't done this well yeah well that's where um the beauty of forgiveness comes in and um, the blood of jesus christ can cover all sins and then it motivates us to humbly ask forgiveness of those whom we've sinned against if that's the case but there's no question about the fact because drew for a while was a student at the indiana school for the blind and um, the teachers told us, even when he was small, when these kids become teenagers, they become very incorrigible. Mm-hmm. They just assume that these kids are going to become mad at their situation. They're going to become very, very difficult. And, you know, Chris and I said, over our dead bodies, mm-hmm. is that going to happen? But um, that, that's the answer to that, I think, in a nutshell, is the sufficiency of the forgiving blood of Christ. Yes? I'm currently we have various, I, a Sunday school teacher, my husband and I serve together. We have various special needs come through our classroom. Uh-huh. We're currently dealing with um, some parents right now that aren't angry at everything we've done. They've already left the church, but we called both mm-hmm. my husband, and the other pastor, called and begged them to come back to yeah. us. Let's work on this together. Their tendency is to run away. Sure. Face it. And no matter what we do, we do mm-hmm. it wrong, and the child needs to be coddled. Yeah. How can we minister best to... Parents or, or yeah. to work with you. Well, and it goes back to what was said in the, Q, or the Q&A panel. Um, you know, you can do it all right, and that doesn't mean that people are going to respond to what it is that you're trying to do. Um, I mean, think about some of God's counselees. You know, Adam and Eve, they didn't do so good. And I guess you could say, well, but God was just getting started. Um, well, then think about God's <laughs> next counseling case, um, Cain. And um, so just because you do all the right things doesn't mean that others are going to respond well. And we've had enough experience with parents of special needs children that um, some of them can get a chip on their shoulder. And, I mean, they're just mad at the world. There's nothing you're going to be able to do to satisfy them. So you do the best you can, but you walk away not finding your joy in were they satisfied. You walk away saying, did I try to do my best to serve them? And if so, that's enough whether they responded properly or not. You could pray for us because we have a um, – Drew's softball team has a end-of-the-year pool party, and um, they have asked to do that at our church's community center this year because we have an indoor pool that has zero-depth entry. So those kids can go right in, and if they have the right kind of wheelchairs, they can actually take their wheelchairs right in with no steps. And so we're going to have a great opportunity to minister to all of those children and their parents, but it's a it's a marvelous – opportunity then just to rub shoulders with them and try to connect them to other resources that we have so I I really think this is an untapped ministry area for many of our churches and in many of our communities but marvelous opportunities everywhere hey listen thanks a lot y'all have a good supper Copyright 2014, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.